Welcome to this message from City Bible Church in Portland, Oregon. City Bible Church is a vibrant community of people with one common desire to experience God, enjoy people, and celebrate life. The Psalms has a dominating theme in the Psalms that comes out in all of the Psalms. The dominating theme has to do with the desire of God. So in this series, what I'm trying to do is to inspire a desire of God in your life right now, wherever you are coming from, wherever you're starting or uh, on your journey, whatever level of growth you happen to be on, it doesn't matter. I want to inspire you just to love God and know God more. The Psalms in the uh, dominating theme, it reads like this. Uh, The desire for God dominates in the Psalms, encouraging us to think and feel God through the words of people who desired God. The words that we're looking at are the words of David, mostly because David wrote 73 of the 150 Psalms and influenced many, many more because many of the Psalms were written around the people that were with David during his rule and reign. So that's why a lot of people would probably think David wrote all the Psalms, but he wrote half of them and influenced many of them, and they were written during his time period as he was king of Israel. So through the words of people who desired God, creating in us, these words, a deep craving to encounter and enjoy God. Turn in your Bible to Psalm 63. We're going to be going through that psalm, Psalm 63. This psalm is called, and I'd like you, if you do write in your Bible, just to go ahead and write down some of the titles of this psalm. This psalm is called the Psalm of the Thirsty Soul, Desperate Life, Satisfied Soul, Wilderness Experience, Intense Longing, and the Morning Song, the Psalm of the morning. So anybody that would read Psalm 63, do any research, read the commentators, anybody that's written on the psalm, especially this psalm, many people would label it different labels. And this is what I have in front of you. These labels would help you try to get a feel for this particular psalm. It has a background to it, and we'll get into that in a moment. The psalm is written with a theme about being thirsty for God. It's one of the psalms that most would agree embodies the entire spirit of the psalms. If you understand this psalm and feel the spirit of this psalm, you would actually uh, feel the spirit of all the psalms because it embodies the spirit of the psalms. It's a soul that needs God. It's a soul that's honest with God. Here's our thirsty soul prayer. I would like you to pray it out loud with me, if you would. If you're not used to talking in church, it's kind of one of the things I do when I teach. I kind of have people teach with me and preach with me. And so if you're new to this, uh, just kind of act like you're old to it. And if you don't want to read anything I tell you to read, I won't take any offense of that. Uh, But I try to get people to think and and say and kind of move with me through the sermon. Instead of me speaking at you, I'm trying to speak with you as we think together about this particular psalm. Here's our prayer because it really does come out of the whole psalm that we're going to look at. Let's pray it out loud together. Lord, my heart is in need of a fresh touch of grace. Stop right there. And would you turn to someone around you and say, are you in need? Are you in need? Are you in need of a touch of grace? How, how many of you have ever been in need of a real, 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 real definite, important touch of grace in your life? There were times when just, if you didn't get it, you'd be in trouble. You had to have a touch of grace in your life. Lord, my heart is in need of a fresh touch of grace, everyone. A deep deposit of your presence 
a change in my soul from poverty to spiritual wealth. New intensity that creates a new capacity for you. I rise up today and I follow hard after you. Psalm 63. Psalm 63, as you have it in your Bible, probably if you are looking at any translation of the Bible, it'll have at the top, an inscription about the psalm, that is, some historical context for the psalm. A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Let's get the context so that you understand why this psalm is so important in the wilderness of Judah. First of all, David had been in many wildernesses throughout his life. When you follow David from the beginning right through to the end of his life, you will find there were seasons of many wildernesses and then some with less wildernesses, but hardly any time in his life but a few years where he had no wilderness experience. Remember, he starts as a shepherd and then he moves into the king's palace as the musician and plays for Saul. Saul becomes insanely jealous, tries to kill David. David is pushed into the wilderness as a young man. He was probably 17, 18 years of age. He spent maybe 12 years in the wilderness running and hiding from Saul, cave to cave, wilderness to wilderness. Finally, it comes to an end. Saul is murdered by the enemy along with his son, Jonathan, David's best friend. All of Israel mourns them. They call David back. David becomes the king of Israel. He brings Israel together because Israel is called the house of Israel, the house of Judah, because it represents all the 12 tribes. When they split into two houses later on after Solomon's rule, there were 19 kings that ruled in the house of Israel and 19 kings in history that ruled in the house of Judah. In the house of Israel, there was not one good king of 19. In the house of Judah, there were eight kings that were good. And you have the history of some of them like Asa, Asa and some of those that were actually good kings after the heart of David. But David was one of the three kings that ruled over the entire house together. All 12 tribes, along with the 13th tribe, which some people don't understand, which is the tribe of Levi. But all the 12 tribes were together under Saul, but Saul became a bad king. God removes him, David becomes king, and then David lives his life out and his son Solomon becomes king. So those three are the mountain peaks of Israel history because they have the whole house together. David had committed a horrible sin. About 20 years into his reign, he had a situation where he lusted after a woman and that woman was married to one of his generals, one of his friends, and he uh, pulled together a very evil a concocted plan that he could take this woman to himself, have the husband murdered, and he got away with it for a few months. And then God came and revealed the whole thing through Nathan the prophet. The child died. Uh, Bathsheba and David both have a judgment on their life. David's kingdom is judged from that point on. A lot of consequence comes out of David's horrible failure. His lack of integrity at that moment cost him the next 20 years of his reign. And the prophet said to him, you'll have a sword over your house and that sword will be a sword of consequence. Your own sons will rise up against you. Your own concubines and wives will be raped in front of all of Israel. You will have your enemies cross your border and rip off some stuff and judge your cities. You're going to have trouble, David, from this point on, but I will not kill you. Under the law, David should have been stoned and killed right then. He says, I will not take your life, but there will be consequence for your sin. David lived with that consequence. And this Psalm 
happens during one of those consequential times, during that time when David was having his house rise up against you. And you can read about this, which you don't need to as far as right now going to it. But 2 Samuel chapter 15, 16, 17 would be the backdrop to this psalm right here. And in 2 Samuel, you'll read about David's son, whom he loved more than all the sons of his house. The man's name was Absalom. Now for us, If you know the Bible at all, Absalom represents uh, a naughty word to you, a word of disloyalty, a divisive man. Everyone knows Absalom represents something evil. I I don't think I've ever dedicated a child named Absalom. I've I've never, ever met anybody that someone called Absalom. It's, It's a name in the Bible that represents almost like Lucifer or something very evil. And so Absalom being... Uh, one of the uh, best-looking men of all of Israel, the Bible says, he was so handsome, he was strikingly handsome. He had long, dark hair, curly hair. He was a man's man in uh, that he could, you know, fight, sing, do it all. He was good-looking. He stole the hearts of people. He was a magnificent specimen uh, of a young man. But he had an evil heart, and his ambition was to remove his own father from the throne. And so when you read in the Bible, what happens is that Absalom, it took him years to do this. He would go and stand at the gate of those that were coming in to see the king. And he would say to all of them day after day, month after month, year after year, says in the Bible after 40 years, whether that was his age, I believe it's referring to that he actually had the rebellion that started when he was 40. But he had done this for years and years when people would come in and say, I'm here to see David. Uh, there's a problem in our city. And he would say, what province are you from? What city are you from? Oh, that's, 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 that's too bad. There's no deputy for you. There's nobody to hear. But if I was king, I would take care of your problem. And if I was really in authority... This would not happen to your city. And he would do that day after day and month after month. And it said he stole the hearts of the people. That's what it says in the Bible. He stole the hearts of Israel. How can you steal the hearts from a man like David? This man would have had to have a lot of charisma, a lot of influence, and a lot of perseverance. And sometimes people with a lot of wrong ambition have all those things that are out of order in their life. And so he stole the hearts of Israel. He made up a plan that he would have all of his spies throughout the tribes. And when he blew the trumpet, they were all to begin to yell out, Absalom is over Hebron. Absalom shall be king. And this whole conspiracy would erupt and everything would take place and he would remove David or kill David, his own father, so that he could have the throne. His servants, David's servants, come running into the house and say, David, quick, get your stuff. We've got to get out. Your son Absalom has stole the hearts of the people, even the army, the captains, the generals, even your counselors. All the people are against us. We've got to leave right now. And so David had no chance to prepare anything. He just grabbed his stuff and his most faithful bodyguards, and a very small army, about 600 men actually. And they snuck around the back, went down the backside of the mountain, across Mount Olives, got into the valley, and they snuck out of the city. And as they were doing that, Absalom was murdering people, raping women, taking over the kingdom. And it says, as David went, he went barefoot with sackcloth and ashes and weeping as he walked. This man is brokenhearted. 
the son he loved is now ruining his kingdom. He is now not a young man, David himself. As you can imagine, if Absalom is 40, David's got to be somewhere in his 70s or his 80s. David is not a young man. And he's now being chased from his throne by his own family. His life is being threatened. He's being pushed into the wilderness. And as he goes into the wilderness, messengers are coming to him to tell him what's going on. And one of them comes and says, you know, Ahithophel, your, your favorite counselor? Yeah. He's with Absalom. What? Yeah, he's, he's one of them. Oh, how can that be? Then another one would run up. You know what? This is, this is going on now. You know who's with him? These guys also. And so all of David's closest loyal people have turned their hearts against him. And we're now with Absalom. So David's heart is being broken open. And as he goes, he moves out gets to the top of the mountain just before it goes over into the wilderness of Judah, which is is quite a a wilderness. There's caves and everything. And David's familiar with this wilderness, probably why he went there. While he's doing that, weeping, walking barefoot, sackcloth and ashes, a man named Shimei gets on top of the mountain, top of the hill as they're walking through this gully, and he starts throwing rocks at David and, and yelling at him, You bloody man! You deserve it. I love this. You are an evil man. This is God getting back at you because David had taken over some of his enemies and done some things in the past. And so now this man sees it as a vengeance time. And so one of David's men drew a sword and says, excuse me for a moment, King. I'm just going to go up and take his head off. I'm just going to remove him. I'm going to relieve him of that naughty tongue that keeps wagging in his head. And that man was just, I mean, David's men, I mean, they could do that in a heartbeat. And David grabbed him and said, no, no, you don't touch him. David, we don't need that, no. Don't touch him. Peradventure, God is allowing him to say these things to me. Let him alone. Jimmy, I followed him for a long way, just yelling out, and David just, with his pain, with his hurt, with his heart, with his tears, with his humility, with all that was going on in David. And as he stepped into the wilderness, he stepped into the wilderness alone. There's no palace, there's no orchestra, there's no tabernacle of David, there's no Ark of the Covenant, there's no counselors, there's no choirs, there's no band, there's nothing. And he steps into the wilderness and you pick it up right here. Read with me. This is David in this wilderness, in this emotion, at this time, in this brokenness. Oh, God, come on, say it out loud with me. You are my God. Go ahead, say it. And David uses two words for God here. The word he first uses is Elohim. Oh, Elohim, supreme God amongst all gods, above all gods, your throne hasn't moved. I recognize. He doesn't use Jehovahistic names here. He doesn't cry out to Yahweh. doesn't cry out to Jehovah. He doesn't use that whole set of names, which is more uh, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Nissi, Jehovah Provider, all the personal names of God that they put on Yahweh. He goes right back to the basic name that's used in the book of Genesis, which is God, the creator, God in charge of heaven and earth. And so he goes right back to the beginning he says, Elohim, you are in control and you are God. And then he says, you are my God. He uses just the first two words. He just says, our first two letters, L, E, L, you are L, you are my L, E, L. Which is translated 
strength. Mighty one. So David says, you're the supreme ruler. I recognize sovereignty in this situation. When you're in a wilderness, you're in a crisis, you're in a place where people are pushing you around, you're in a place where nothing makes sense, you're in a place where you could cry out, unjust, unfair, not right, life stinks, this isn't the way I imagine it to be. I want you to go back to the very beginning. In God, we trust. And in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. In the beginning, God set his throne. In the beginning, God created man. By the way, folks, God is in charge. He is supreme. He is sovereign. He knows what he's doing. Nothing gets by his attention. He keeps all the books. He knows exactly what going to happen to Absalom. He knows exactly what's going to happen to Shimei. He knows exactly what's going to happen to every situation and person involved with it. And so David says, all right, I'm back to basics here. Oh God, you're my God. Then David says, early will I seek you. Early will I, but the word seek you is just one Hebrew word. It really would read early, I awaken the dawn. Early, the dawn awakens me. I look for the sunrise. Early, I look for the dawn. I look for the sunrise. And let me just speak into your life right now. David was in a physical wilderness, but the physical wilderness was a description of his life. He was not just in a physical wilderness. He was in an emotional wilderness, a spiritual wilderness, a mental wilderness, a relational wilderness. He was in a wilderness. Desolate, isolated, solitary, discouraging, brokenhearted, wilderness. As David was in the physical, but also in the life wilderness, so people that are listening to me right now could be in your own wilderness, where it's a wilderness of brokenness, a wilderness of misunderstanding, a wilderness where darkness is set over your soul, or the circumstances are beyond you. You don't understand why you're in this wilderness. And sometimes you don't know how to get out. And sometimes you don't understand how all of it works together for good to them who love the Lord to call according to his purpose. And that Romans 8, 28 verse people throw out all the time. How in the world would this ever work for anything good? And but if you would kind of rest on the sovereignty of God, you would come back and say, Lord, I know I'm at a sunset time. The sun has set on my life. Darkness has surrounded me. The the circumstances are all over me. I need a sunrise to come on my sunset. I need a dawn to break into my darkness. Early will I seek you, Lord. Early will I dawn you. Early will I expect a breaking of this darkness over my life that you would rise up, Lord, and do something awesome in me. Lord, I will not give in to this darkness. I'm in the circumstance, but the circumstance is not in me. I'm in the wilderness, but the wilderness is not in me. I'm in a misunderstanding, but I will not be misunderstood. Oh, God, you're my God, and early I expect a breakthrough in my darkness. Come on, can I hear an amen? amen? David is praying out of a heart that has been broken, but the brokenness has driven him to God. Are you in a wilderness? Is everything pushing the wrong way on you? 
Your marriage in a wilderness, your parenting, your finance, your job, your future, your destiny, your, your whole reason for living. Do you feel just overwhelmed sometime by all this? Do you ever just ask the question, why am I here? What in the world is this all about? You ever just kind of put it all on the table in front of God sometimes or in front of your own mind and just say, this is not what I bargained for. This is not what I thought it was all about. This is not what I expected my life to be or where it would go. And the whole world is crazy, by the way. Anybody ever just think the way I just said? So did David. And oh God, what do I have left? You're my God. My soul thirsts. Would you underline right there where it says, my soul thirsts, and if you're taking notes or write it in your Bible, would you just put down from verses 1 to 4 is thirsty soul verses. My soul thirsts. That's the first section. Then if you'll skip down to verse 5 and underline my soul again, and notice what it says, shall be satisfied, underline the word satisfied, and just write next to verses 5 through 7, satisfied soul. And then if you'll skip down to verse 8, and underline my soul follows close behind you and just put down following hard soul. The soul that's following hard after God. So he had three sections, verse one, verse five, and verse eight. The thirsty soul, everyone say thirsty soul. The satisfied soul, come on, say it. And the following hard soul. So he had three sections In this psalm, as the soul is progressing, David is experiencing a crying out to God in his wilderness as you and I are crying out to God in our wilderness. Notice my soul, verse 1, thirst for you, my flesh long for you. Underline word thirst, underline the word long. In a dry and thirsty land where there's no water. For I've looked for you, in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. If you're not a person who has thirst for God, and that happens, there are times in life where you don't desire, you don't have passion, you don't thirst. There are times in life where you fill yourself and eat from a table of a culture or a world and you eat their bread and drink their wine, so to speak, and you uh, eat your fill of the world and you find that you can't really satisfy yourself, but you're so full of entertainment and movies and Nintendos and games and, and texting and emailing and Facebooking and writing and traveling and driving to work and thinking about the, the, the economy and listening to the news. You're so full of things. that someone comes along like me and says, by the way, When was the last time you felt a thirst for God? Well, what do you mean? A longing. 
a passion, a driving force. The only way to be satisfied is for that to come into you. When was the last time you felt that? David probably had the same problem you and I have. In the palace, in the busyness of life, with the tabernacle right next to him, sometimes church can shroud the true shallowness of a Christian's life. Because you start thinking you're as spiritual as the people you go to church with. Or you're okay because you do go to church. And so church begins to actually hide the fault, the broken, the fragmented person inside. David had a tabernacle. Anytime he wanted, walk over. The band was playing. The singers were singing. Presence of God was there. And he would drink it in. But it might have been that David started depending on the sanctuary to give him that presence and that experience to fill his soul and so involved with being king and general and everything else in his palace that he forgot just how good it is to have God by himself with no band, with no choir, with no church singing, with no external stuff to make you kind of lift your hands and say, I'm worshiping God this morning, which is great. I'm glad you are. But when you get thrown back into the life and then all of a sudden wilderness and a soul that's a little shallow or sick or broken or empty or... or, or and it, if you don't know how to do what David did right here when he finally found it again. Oh God, you're my God. Not the God of Israel, not the God of the choirs, not the God of the tabernacle, the God of Moses, not to. You're my God. You're my strength. You know, I could get real bitter toward this guy. I could get real mad about the, you know, I could really, but I'm not. Because I remember the days when I was a shepherd and how I, just fell in love with you, Lord. I just, it was so simple, just you and me. I didn't know there would be a throne later on and a kingdom and wealth and fame. And it was just you and me, just simplistic you and me. Just you and me. I had no idea that I would be overcome by the evil of other people, jealous of what I had. I didn't even know I had anything. But then as I progressed in what I had, I became secure in what I thought I was instead of secure in what I had been in love with you. All of Christianity, all that God wants from you is not a bunch of works. He doesn't want you to become a robotic Christian, a a person that does everything right. And okay, you do your devotions, you give your tithe, you go to church, you help the poor. None of those things are wrong. Not one of them. But the epitome of it all, the the center, the core, the, the reason it all happens and it makes it right is that God has your heart, you have God's heart, and you're in love with God. When all hell breaks loose, all you do is just say, Oh God, what are you going to do about this? This is really weird. But of course, you know weird. So you work it out, will you?
David began to thirst after God. The wilderness is a place where God strips from our lives the things that have become substitutes for his presence. The wilderness is a place where God strips from our life the props, the substitutes, the chaff, the stuff that keeps you from just being simplistically in love with Jesus and Jesus in love with you. Strips it all away. And then you begin to look for him like you did in the sanctuary because your love and kindness is better than life. Verse 3, verse 4. Thus I will bless you while I live. Now these are the words of a soul that's starting to come alive. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness. That is my soul's moving from poverty to spiritual feast. I now understand the feast for my soul is not in my possessions, not in my positions. It's not in all of my reputation. It's not in all of my wealth. My soul is made fat when I really find who you are. When I find that relationship, wealth starts coming back into my soul and I shall be satisfied. And my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you in my bed, I meditate on you in the night. I had one of my dear friends who was going through a a real horrible battle with his health and stuff going on. He called me one time and we were talking. He just said, you know, Frank, pray pray for me during the night times. I said, what what do you mean? What's the problem? He says, you know, I'm great during the day and I read the word and You know, I have fellowship. A lot of people text me, email me and pray for me and my wife's around and everything. He says, you know, I I feel actually stable during this whole time when I'm around all that and, you know, the peace of God and they help me. But he said, when I lay down at night and I'm by myself and the lights are off and it's dark, he says, it's like all hell breaks loose on my thoughts and all of a sudden, all of these anxiety thoughts and fear and and." A spirit almost just comes on me and and these thoughts just bombard me during the night. When I get quiet, my mind gets loud. And when I get quiet, he says, all those real deep fears start coming up. What if? How about? What would you do? And you know, this is... And he says, all these things just move me to a fear on my bed. It just paralyzes me. When a person's in a crisis, when, when you're going through a wilderness, going through whatever, physical, relational, marital, domestic, finance, I mean, it's, it's, it's all out there. It's all out here. If I would ask of hands how many are going through a relational, really tough time right now, there'd be hands all over. How many marriages are on the bubble? There'd be some hands. How many marriages are almost finished? There'd be some hands. How many parents are brokenhearted over their children? There'd be some hands. How many people are going through financial upside down? There would be some hands. Which, which means the possibility 
that when you lay down at night and the day is over and you toss and you turn and you look at the clock and it says 1210, then it's 110, then it's 215, then it's 318, then it's 420 and it's 520. You, you almost just want the day to come quickly so you can get up and get rid of your own thoughts and not lay in the bed. I'm sure David had gone through that long enough where he finally says here, when I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. The night watches. Nine, twelve, three, and six. Four night watches. It says, when I lay in my bed, I am so broken through with my new dawn and the sunrise is giving place to my sunset and I believe it. My hands are up. My mouth is filled. I know who you are. I know what you've done. I'm confessing good things. I'm believing good things. I know you're a loving God. I'm in your hands. Everything's okay when I'm in your hands. And when I lie on my bed, I meditate on you and all this other stuff is being pushed out. May I suggest to you a reading of the scriptures before you go to sleep every day. And for you to remind yourself just a few simple things. By the way, number one, God is sovereign. Number two, God is able. Number three, God is good. Number four, God is not worrying. Number five, God is not broke. Number six, God is not confused. Number seven, God knows every hair in my head. Number eight, God can overcome any situation. I mean, just fill your mind with the God thoughts. God gets bigger and the problem gets smaller. But if you think on the problem, the problem gets bigger and God gets smaller. David says, I meditate. The night watches, verse 7, because you have been my help. Turn to your neighbor right now and say, he's been my help. Come on, confess it to someone. He's been my help. Now, if you can't say that, change it around and say, I need his help. If you can't say that, just say, I need help. (laughs) Maybe that would fit. And that's all right, too. You've been my help, therefore, in the shadow of your wings I will rejoice. My soul. Everyone say, my soul. My soul soul follows close behind you. Your right hand upholds me. That is, I can't fall any more into the situation than God will let me because His hand is holding me up. In this situation, I will not go any further down, any further in. I won't be any more overwhelmed than God will allow because his hand is underneath. He upholds me. Those who seek to destroy my life shall go to the lower parts of the earth. I would say that's all the evil kingdom, the devil and all his little helpers. They shall fall by the sword. The sword of the Lord, they shall be a portion for the jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him shall glory. But the mouth of those who speak lies shall be stopped. Why? 
because God is my God and my dawn is ready to break. And I'm reminded, by the way, I'm not by myself and God is my help. Come on, people. God is for you. God knows you. More important than anything else, God loves you. Not for what you can do for him, just the fact that you're breathing. God loves you. If you have sin, there's a way out. It's called the cross. Jesus, he's not here to rail on you. He's here to help you. 